Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's our tell show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to turn down the noise on a few things. You may have heard there's some stuff going on over in Russia. Vladimir Putin, the dictator of that country, one of the worst actors on the world stage, a despicable human being, has came out and given a speech. He is mobilizing his reserve forces and he is demanding referendums in the areas in Ukraine that they either occupy or have sympathetic people controlling couple things we need to cover about this real quick. Uh, Let's be real blunt about what's going on. Russia is getting their tail kicked. They have had had excessive losses in Ukraine for a lot of reasons. One is something I've told you. I'm a logistics guy by trade. I started out doing logistics in the military. I've been on Russian aircraft. I've dealt with Russian logistics. Their logistics suck. They don't know how to do it. They don't prioritize it. They don't have people in charge of it. They don't have the ability to move the most important things in warfare, beans and bullets, to where you need them to fight wars. So long as the war goes, the logistics start to tell. They also have a manpower problem. We have all kinds of reports that they have naval personnel, clerical personnel, conscripts with very little training manning their tank crews. What does that mean? They don't have very good battle efficiency. And now Ukraine's forces have taken back large swaths of lost territory and are even threatening to maybe get those separatist regions and maybe even Crimea itself, which was annexed. That's legalese and politeese for Russia invaded and took it over, even though they did it without a shot. They still took it from Ukraine. Ukraine may even try to get that back. So Vladimir Putin is getting desperate. He was hoping to count on General Winter, that old friend of the Russian army, to bail him out. He was hoping to leverage the energy crisis in Europe to try to get them to force a settlement. The problem is he's losing on the battlefield so badly. There's no way the Ukrainians are going to go for a settlement because they're winning. And they think they can win this thing out right now. Calling up the conscripts isn't going to help. Now, it's labored, numbered at 300,000 conscripts. But when you look at the fine print on this and experts look through this, we're going to link to a few things for you to read up with this on yourself. They're very wide ranging on the regional authorities having authority to get basically whoever they want. And of course, we know Vladimir Putin controls all that. But what do we need to watch going forward? Because these conscripts aren't going to change the tide of battle because they don't do basic training in the Russian military like in the American military where you have months and months of training before you get anywhere near a career specialty. These are going to be cannon fodders and they're going into an environment that's demoralized and already losing. So what is going to happen here? Two things. Uh, This is going to be meat for the meat grinders. These poor Russian troops that are getting called up and sent to the front have zero chance. So militarily, this isn't going to change anything. However, a mobilization of reservists means that the vast majority of Russia can no longer ignore this war. 
they've basically been able to do it. We've had a lot of reporting of how almost none of the units involved were from places like Moscow because they wanted to try to keep the casualties and be able to control the narrative. With a vast call-up of reservists, they're not going to be able to do that, and we're already seeing protests over there. Now, they're going to crack down hard on those protests, but they can't be everywhere at once. Also, keep an eye on the former Soviet republics that are now independent. Many of them still beholden to Vladimir Putin, but there's all kinds of trouble. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan. Look at what's going on there. Putin is losing control, and he's going to lose control domestically, which is what he fears the most. And every step he takes to try to salvage face in Ukraine, it's going to destabilize him at home. This is a very dangerous situation because we have a very wicked man with a lot of power at his disposal that is now desperate, cornered, and running out of options. We need to pay very close attention to him. Now, let's be really clear about a couple of things. I hate war, but this war was thrust upon Ukraine. They didn't choose this. They didn't do anything to deserve it. NATO didn't do anything to deserve it. We can talk about geopolitics, but nothing justifies Vladimir Putin trying to wipe Ukraine off the map, which is what he said he wanted to do. He said it's not a real country and a real people. He wanted to get rid of them. That's ethnic cleansing. You can even argue that's genocide. And it's just flat wrong. The good guys need to win and the bad guys need to lose. And Vladimir Putin's the bad guy. So I hate war. And the way I hate war is when somebody unjustly starts a war, you got to give it to them enough so that they never seek it again. Vladimir Putin, we have drained so much of his resources because the Ukrainians have fought him. The paper bear of the Russian army has been exposed. The Russian economy is going to be in real trouble this winter, and Vladimir Putin is decidedly weakened. Most of those in a vacuum are a good thing, but he's also a bloodthirsty dictator who kills, murders, and uses his own people, and he has a whole bunch of nuclear weapons and other things that he can make a whole lot of trouble with. you got to keep an eye on it, but for right now, the good guys are winning, and they're not only winning, the baddest of the bad guys is obviously publicly, for one of the first times in his long career of terror, scared. More Hurtel right after this. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, I got corrected on something. He's got a problem. I said, come on and tell me to my face. Actually, we didn't say that. I just said, come talk to us because we like him. He's a good guy. He's returning to the show. Travis Nix, how are you, sir? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, he's uh, at Georgetown Law. Good guy. I've been on the program before. All right, let me set the stage with this. So let me just tell you what I said, and then we'll go from there. But we, we have the situation. The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, is suing... Donald Trump and family. Now, we need to lay out a couple particulars here because she's the attorney general of the state of New York. This is a civil suit. Very important to this conversation. 
Part of what she said, though, um, in her very lengthy 45 minutes worth of announcements, um, and I'm reading, this is from Ari Mebler, a well-known reporter on legal affairs. I'm quoting his quote here, just to be clear. We'll link to all this. Y'all read it yourselves. Uh, the New York Attorney General is citing former President Trump's unprecedented, which we can argue that some other time, invocation of the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself in crimes as part of the evidence suggesting he committed crimes and knows he did. That's part of a longer thread, but that was the part I was commenting on. This is my direct quote. I fully believe Trump has all sorts of dirty money and shading dealings. I'm content for an investigation to play out and investigate those things. But in this particular argument, however it is used and whoever it is used against, I don't like it. It's hot garbage. And the people, especially elected judicial leaders, need to stop using it. You replied to me about how you can do this in a civil suit. So before we go any further, you are correct, by the way. You can do this. It's not illegal. Why can you do this in a civil suit and break down the Fifth Amendment privilege for folks so they understand what we're talking about here? Yeah, so the Fifth Amendment right protects people from self-incrimination in criminal context only. So basically, if a cop arrests you and they want you to make a confession, you're allowed to assert your Fifth Amendment right and not talk to them and you have a right to remain silent. But however, if you read the text of the Constitution, it's very clear that it only applies to criminal matters. And this has actually been litigated before the Supreme Court numerous times um, because people were trying to get it to also go to civil in the civil context when you're being deposed in a civil trial, which is what former President Trump was in this New York case. He was asked and other his sons and daughters were asked to take a deposition on his business practices, and they repeatedly asserted their Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate themselves. And the Supreme Court has ruled that in a case called Baxter in 1976, that you do not have a Fifth Amendment right in civil context because the text of the Constitution is clear. And when you invoke the Fifth Amendment right in a civil case, the judge or jury can make an inference um, that that basically the question that you were asked, that they can make an inference about um, your dealings in that matter, an adverse inf inference to the person that was making, that asserted their right. So basically in this case, when Trump um, asserted his Fifth Amendment right, the state of New York can make an adverse um, inference about what that means in the context of the civil lawsuit. Right. So this is settled case law. There's no debate about legally you can do this. I don't like her doing it in this context, and I'll explain my thinking why, and you can respond to it. The, the litigation is for civil context. This is not Charlie Bob suing Rocky Doc over whatever happened in a civil court. This is the attorney general of the state of New York. This is also the attorney general. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Who We've got lots of video briefly talking about how she's going to sue Donald Trump. When you're that person in that role, because, and I want to make this point really clear, she's the AG. She is not a prosecutor. She's a state AG. Those two things are very different things, although there's some overlapping power there. When you're the state AG and you've got that kind of political stuff on what's going to be a political case, and again, I'm not defending Donald Trump. If he's guilty, let's have the trial and get him guilty on it. I have no doubt there's probably some malfeasance there. But you're the sitting elected chief legal officer of the state of New York. I don't like this terminology. I don't like how it's used here. And because we have a legal system that is shot through of instances of people using their own rights against them, 
as admissions of guilt. Am I wrong for having a flag and going, wait a minute, I don't like how this looks, even though legally it's okay to do it? Yeah, I think that you can definitely have that view of that this does not look good, especially when we don't know what the end game is here. She very much likely wants to pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is prob probably trying to protect himself um, from a future criminal case against him from the state of New York. So he's probably been advised by his attorneys that we're not too worried about this civil case right here. So we're going to assert our Fifth Amendment rights because we're more concerned about what happens down the road in a possible criminal case. So therefore, I think you're, yes, you're very right that this probably doesn't look good from her, but it's something that she has to do legally, um, put this in her complaint, talk, uh, talk about it, because basically when Trump's going to file a motion to dismiss this civil lawsuit and by her putting it in her complaint that he asserted her fifth amendment right that basically immunes her complaint from being dismissed you know as soon as trump files his motion to dismiss because in a motion to dismiss context any um questions of law and fact have to be um are ruled in her favor because Trump would be filing the motion to dismiss. So basically by her putting this in her complaint, which she did about six times, she mentions Trump's, the Trump's asserting their fifth amendment rights that basically immunes her complaint from being dismissed by a court. So that would move the lawsuit forward. I think this is an important point because I, I, I feel like I've been saying this for a couple of years because every Trump story is we've really got him this time, right? I keep telling people, if you really want to get Donald Trump, let's just be adults here. Yeah, yeah, it's not fair. You can say whatever you want about it. When you've got a politically charged thing, especially when it's somebody like Donald Trump, the facts on the ground just are when you go to do a prosecution or a civil lawsuit or whatever the case may be, you've got to do it quicker and cleaner and more upright than anything else because it's going to have more scrutiny. That's just the facts on the ground. That's kind of true for any high profile civil case or litigation in general. Is it not fair to say that we really should be paying attention? It, it's not a nothing to blow these things up when they announce them like this. It, there's a something to these sorts of things, isn't it, that need to be discussed? Yeah, I think there's something that needs to be discussed. I'm not sure she's too confident, honestly, in her case because she referred it to the Department of Justice. And if you actually read the complaint, it's about 300 pages worth of accounting practices, which is going to be the most boring thing for a jury or a judge to sit through. And I'm not sure the state of New York has better accountants than former President Trump. So I think one of the reasons they are doing this and referring it to the Department of Justice is hopefully to bring this case out a little bit and get some better lawyers possibly on it at the Fed federal level. Yeah, Travis, next join us. Okay, now you are one of those people. You like stuff like that. You like reading through business law and things like this. Everybody knows that everybody pushes the tax code. They pushes their loan stuff. Everybody's fudges a little bit. Where's the line between malfeasance and criminality when it comes to things like overvaluing your property for a loan or undervaluing property for tax? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about in this complaint in the civil suit for the most part. Where's the line? I know legally that changes some for jurisdictions for jurisdiction, but just generally speaking, so people can get their heads around it. What are you looking for when you're looking at stuff like this? 
so in this case, there's federal accounting rules called GAAP that you have to follow when doing any type of financial disclosure. Um, there's some fuzzy lines with GAAP, but they're pretty strict rules that accounts that accounts have to follow. Accounts are normally very conservative when doing valuations and making sure they're following GAAP. So basically, we're just looking, they're going to have to see whether or not any potential misuse of these accounting principles led to all these damages and led to $250 million worth of fraud that she's claiming the state of New York was defrauded out of. The, shifting through the complaint, which I did for a little bit, that's going to be hard to prove. Like one of her examples, she said of Trump had a 10,000 square foot property that he claimed was 30,000 square feet. Well, even if that's true, that doesn't get you the $250 million worth of fraud. There's a lot of lines that need to be connected, and I'm not sure they're going to be willing or able to do that, especially assuming that President Trump's accountants have very strong uh, paperwork on the procedures they followed and everything that they did, which I'm sure they do. Yeah. One quick question before we let you go. There's been the accusations that this is a placeholding legal action, that she's just putting something with her name on it, pending something else coming down the road. We know there's DOJ referrals. We know there's other investigations in the other aspects of the Trump organization, the Weisenberg stuff, which she actually referenced here. We know about the other things that Donald Trump is accused of. Does that feel like what this is? Do you feel like this is one of those things that kind of disappears in a year or two and gets buried in litigation? Or do you see this getting seen out? I, I think it's eventually going to go to uh, trial and go before a judge or jury, whatever Donald Trump chooses, because I don't think President Trump is going to settle this case. It's not going to be dismissed by a judge because there's too many factual disputes on what are the proper procedures followed, what was actually done by his accountants. So unless she dismisses it, which I don't think she's going to do, this isn't going to go away without a judge's verdict, judge or jury's verdict. How much uh, exposure does Trump have here, do you think? Uh, I think some of the remedies she's proposing are flatly just not based on law and possibly unconstitutional. You're talking about that you'd be banned from doing business in the state ever again, which was almost ludicrous on its face, frankly, even if he was convicted of it. You, I don't think you could do that. That kind of stuff you think is overshot. Yeah, that's complete ridiculous. That $250 million we'll have to see. I mean, that's so that would be what Trump and his organization, his kids are potentially liable for. We'll see whether or not they have proof to get to that amount. But so the, we, but the chance of winning the case is there. It's it's possible. It, yeah, it's very possible. It's not going to get dismissed. It's not going to go away. So it's a viable. It's probably a viable legal case, and we're just going to have to see where it goes. But yeah, it's not going to be dismissed in a month, within a year, anything like that. I just don't see it happening. Yep. All right. Do what Travis did. Read this for yourself. We're going to get it posted up. We have the full press conference up at Ordinary Dash Times as well. And we'll keep bringing Travis back to talk about it because he's really good on stuff like this and smart. So when I pop off about something I shouldn't have said, he'll text me, correct me, and we'll come on and talk about it. Travis, let folks know where they can follow you until the next time I say something stupid on Twitter and you need to straighten me out. Easiest way to follow me is uh, on Twitter at tnix113. Thank you yep. so much for having me on again. Hey, good to see you again, buddy. We'll get you on again soon. Appreciate the time, sir.
Appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to take something that is really, really loud. We're going to turn the noise down on it. Going to get to an aspect of it that a lot of people just kind of skipped over that I think needs to be paid attention to. We're going to talk about these Martha Vineyard flights. We're going to talk about these buses going to D.C. Going to talk immigration, talk migrants, going to talk refugees and asylum seekers. This is the guy we want to talk to it about. Another of our great Young Voices contributors. He's a political science guy. Daniel Chang Contreras, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for having me. I'm doing great. All right. You're in D.C. right now because you're studying one of them prestigious university things that, you know, us community college kids, they didn't want to talk to us, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, I went back later online. Um, You're in D.C. Let's start there because this feels like there's a couple different narratives going here at one. One of them is the D.C. national media political commentary at bubble narrative. You can probably speak to that because you're in DC right now. Then there's the wider nation looking at it from afar. And then there's the people actually involved in these things. Let's take those separately. Let's start with the DC narrative. You're in DC, you're talking to these people, you're on a university campus. Start there when this story hit with the Martha's Vineyard and then shipping folks to uh, Naval Conservatory, that's the vice president's residence. Start there with this story, how it hit you when you found out about it over the weekend. Uh, well, so I found out, uh, I found out about most of the other things on Twitter. And uh, so the, the DC narrative is basically, as you expect, um, it's basically portraying Governor Ron DeSantis, Governor Abbott, uh, in this case, Abbott, because Abbott sent the, the migrants to DC specifically, but DeSantis sent them to Marshall's Vineyard as playing with immigrants as political pawns, as being particularly cruel, uh, saying that, of course, Martha's Vineyard or Washington, D.C., New York, etc., they don't have the capacities to deal with migrants. Actually, this issue has been going for a while, as we all know. Actually, Major, uh, Major Muriel Bowser has called the National Guard for a while to try to deal with migrants. So that's a narrative, basically, uh, painting, of course, Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Abbott as using immigrants as political pawns to get uh, better points with the Republican base and trying to basically tease off uh, Democrats and, and in D.C. and uh, in blue cities. That's like the media narrative itself, which is like the narrative that we've been he- hearing all around um, since these flights and, and bus- buses started going on. OK, let's break a couple of those things down, though, because there's no version of this from any side where this isn't using people for political gains. Like, that's just the base. There, there's no yeah. version of this where they're not using these people. So everybody's being disingenuous on that. Yeah. I don't think it's gaining us anything to parse out who's being the le- least in- disingenuous and who's being the most useful for these pawns. So I want to bring it to you this way. I heard very few people talking about who these people actually were other than just the average. Some of them got specific and said, well, they're asylum seekers. Most people just said they're migrants or immigrants or illegal immigrants. Pick your poison with that. I heard very few people talking about who these people actually are. So let's start where we talked about. There's different narratives going here. 
who were the actual people being used in these stunts and they are stunts even if you yeah. agree with it it's a stunt yeah, yeah i think this is an important piece of this discussion because who they're using was not accidental but nobody's talking about who these people as a people group specifically is but you know who these folks are don't you of course they're venezuelans um they're venezuelans they're uh, i'm venezuelan as well i know the situation uh of venezuelan migrants as any uh of my compatriots know and it has been a situation that is one of the worst humanitarian crises in the Western Hemisphere over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, and it's basically the United States has been coming into this crisis, the refugee crisis, the Venezuelan refugee crisis, late in the game. Uh, you guys, because of course, geogra uh, geographically, uh, quite quite a far uh, far from the United from Venezuela, haven't really suffered it in many ways, but now. Uh, you know, it has come into effect. It has come in, and 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 now the Venezuelan crisis has come into the United States. The reality of this is that while we talk about uh, asylum seekers, while we talk about Venezuelan migrants, as if this were as if were any other nationality, as we're talking about Salvadorians, Nicaraguans, Guatemalans, etc., the reality is the Venezuelan crisis is very, very different. It's very specific as well. It's a very it has a political origin, and Republicans know this because they've telling they've been telling this for for years. And Democrats try to ignore it in some regards because of some ideological issues. But the, the reality is that the Venezuelan crisis has left a 6.8 million people fleeing the country since 2017, 2018. Um, that's almost a quarter of the country in just four or five years have left Venezuela because of the socialist pol policies of Nicolás Maduro. And a majority of people actually haven't come to the United States, right? I mean, a lot of people may say, may say oh, why are they coming here? Majority of Venezuelans have left to Colombia, to Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina, uh, Panama. They actually even left to Trinidad and Tobago in the, in rafts as well. So Venezuelans are leaving the country in a, an astonishing rate. This is like, imagine like 25% of America left in four years. That's the, the magnitude of the, the issue we're talking about here. And those are the people that are being bossed to Washington, D.C., they are being bossed to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and as you said, yeah, use as political stunts. To be fair, um, many of these people use this probably this bus to get to New York, to get to Washington, D.C., and from then they'll go other where uh, other place where they have some family and friends and they can like settle in. Um, that's most likely the, uh, not what they will do. But the reality is that the United States is now facing the reality of the Venezuelan refugee crisis. And instead of having an appropriate policy response, we are trying to include the Venezuelan crisis within the uh, broader themes of immigration and the broader, politi broader political um, fights between Democrats and Republicans on immigration, wh which I would think it's actually uh, both not correct in a moral term and also it's not even, not even good in a policy term because the uh, root problems are very different. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
and one of those root problems, uh, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. Here, here's one of the root problems we don't talk about. Everybody understands that the southern border is a mess. Like everybody knows that's a problem. The problem is too. You have to parse out who's down there, and we don't do that. We just broad brush it, like we say. Well, because you say illegal immigrants on the southern border, everybody immediately starts thinking, well, probably Mexicans or other South Americans, but primarily Mexican, Hispanic thing. How are these Venezuelans that are coming into America, getting to the southern border, asking for asylum, and then getting bust and or flown somewhere else? We're just picking on the last part of that. If you go look at a map, that's a freaking journey. It they're is. not they're not walking that. There's ways that they're having to get there. That is a trek. It is dangerous. You've wrote about this before, and it was funny because you re-upped your piece on this, and, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Go read it for yourself. And you're like, this was horrible, and this was two years ago, and it's even gotten worse. Yeah. Why why does that part matter? Because people are like, well, they're coming illegally, so it doesn't matter. No, it does matter because when they're seeking asylum, that's a legal definition. That's a specific process and understanding what they go through to get here is part of what they can argue when they seek asylum, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And that's really important what you point out. Um, I, I understand the temptation of saying, oh, illegal immigrants, they all speak Spanish. They're probably from Mexico or uh, the Northern Triangle. They're really close. They just cross Mexico and that's it. The reality is very different. As you said, Venezuela is far from the south, southern border. It's extremely far. It's not something that you do like in a in a regular basis, right? It's actually not something that we did, like Venezuelans did historically. It's something that has, uh, it's a phenomenon that has appeared over the last couple of years, actually, because the situation in Venezuela back home is really bad. That's why it's happening. It's not like historically Venezuelans go to appear in the Rio Grande and, and claim for asylum. No, actually, right? In 2019, in fiscal year 2019, 2020, it's like 5,000 encounters. Now we have 155,000 encounters on this fiscal year, and it hasn't ended yet. So the numbers are quite substantial. And what they do now, what, what Venezuelans do, when I wrote the piece that you referred, usually Venezuelans did get into Mexico by plane and then they trekked through Mexico, uh, basically being at the mercy of the cartels and coyotes and all that. But today, most Venezuelans don't do that because uh, thanks to Biden, by the way, Mexico imposed really severe visa restrictions on Venezuelans to avoid Venezuelans getting into the south southern border. And that didn't work out. What it did was that Venezuelans are now going through the Darien Gap, which is a very uh, remote jungle between uh, Colombia and Panama. They trekked that uh, that gap where a lot of people died. This is really, 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 really grisly, really bad things happening to the Darien Gap. We're talking about uh, people dying of uh, dehydration, people dying of exhaustion, people being uh, killed, people being uh, subjected to torture by cartels and criminals and all that and gangs. They cross through the rain gap and they then walk all the way up uh, to towards uh, the Rio Grande. And by the way, this is not the only route of migrants of Venezuelan migrants walking until they get the destinations. This type of route also happened a couple of years before, but it wasn't to the United States. It was to Peru. It was to Chile. Uh, it was more in the in the southern continent. So what I want really want to point out here and to especially to American audience. This is not something that all oh, the United States is. Why are we picking all the Venezuelan immigrants? Why are they coming here? The, the United States is just the last country on the large list that is suffering the effects of the uh, humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. It has been going on for, for a long while in South America. Chile, Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, they can talk about it. And now the United States is just another name into the list. Just the United States just got caught, on, caught off guard. Yeah, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. All right, here's where this gets sticky. 
So they go through this process, and this is the same for all asylum seekers and people that are trying to get to the border to get some kind of legalization process going because that's something else that gets lumped in. It's like, hey, some of those folks are coming to the border. They're coming to places they're told that this is where you go to try to get into the country. That's what they're told, whether it's true or not. That's what they're being told. So they get to the border. And they start trying to seek asylum or claim asylum. And to do that, because the way the laws are written, you have to be on U.S. soil to claim U.S. asylum. Yeah, That's where this gets really messy. These people now, again, like you just said, they've been trekking through the jungle. They've been, you know, low cost airlines. And then however they can get to the border, they get to the border sometimes by very, you know, malicious means that we'll deal with some other time. If they don't have a good information and we don't have a good coherent policy, like you said, you know, the, the Trump administration had one policy, Biden had an administration, they've been in court working on the Trump administration policy. When Trump came in, he was in court trying to fix the Obama era policy. We do not have coherent policy. Let's just lay that out. Whether you like it or not, it's not coherent. So all these folks are being told is come to the border, get your feet on U.S. soil and ask for asylum. Mm-hmm. That's what they're told. So when they get to the border, that's when this starts getting really, really messy not just humanitarian, but legally it's messy because a lot, even the American experts on immigration argue over what actually is the process right now, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, as you as you said, uh, the United I would say it's not that we have, uh, the United States doesn't have a coherent policy. Sometimes it doesn't have any policy. Um, the Biden administration has done some basic, some things to steam basically the, 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 the flow of my, of Venezuelan refugees trying to take asylum in the United States. It hasn't really worked. It has implemented TPS, but that TPS doesn't cover people who came, uh, the most, the majority of people who came through the border. And of course, as you said, a lot of the Venezuelan migrants that come here, they uh, go to the U.S. or they claim asylum. And the asylum process is broken in many ways. Uh, taking to one, uh, one asylum case can, you know, uh, before it actually gets heard and it actually gets decided, it can be years in the making, right? It can be long time before a court actually decides what it will if the asylum seeker uh, gets asylum or not and of course people come here in the meantime they got some work permits and they can try to uh rehash their life for a while so of course the united states the combination of uh, humanitarian catastrophe in venezuela and a lack of policy a clear policy on the venezuelan issue on the venezuelan migratory issue as the united states uh, has created this situation and by the way let me i will repeat this again it's not like it's not something new. The United States should have known that this was coming because Colombia has been facing this for years now. Um, Peru and all the countries in South America, apparently. But of course, uh, policymakers sometimes think that anything law the Rio Grande sometimes really doesn't exist. Uh, and now the chickens that come to roost, of course, the United States will be suffering from the, I want to say even suffering, being affected by the refugee crisis of Venezuela. And unless Democrats or Republicans get their uh, act together, this will continue going on without um a clear legal and policy um policy procedures to get this done yeah daniel chan Contreras joining us uh, we're going to take a quick break uh come back we're going to talk about why the venezuelan folks were the ones being used for these political stunts going to talk about how that played off the ins and outs of some of the tricky parts that the media skipped over we're going to talk about the people side of this as well not just the policy side daniel chan Contreras joins us as we continue on hard tell right after this
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we got Daniel Chan Contreras. We're talking the uh, immigrant. Uh, I don't even know what we need an overarching term for this because we had the Martha Vineyard part, we got the bus part, we got the vice president house part, we got the New York part, the DC part. In that part of the problem, though, is because this thing unthreads so many different ways and the stunts become the thing. And then that's all anybody ever talks about. And now they're, you know, here in another day or two, everybody will forget about it and move on. Like you said, though, this is a constant problem. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, according to Border Patrol, 50,499 encounters were from Venezuelans in fiscal year 21, 155,553 this fiscal year, which hasn't ended. And we already have approximately 300,000 Venezuelans who have requested uh, temporary protective status. It is a ongoing problem, and it's an ongoing problem that has been caused by the Venezuelan situ the political situation back home, like in Venezuela. This is something, by the way, which I think, Andrew, is really important to to, to point out here. <clears throat> and one of the things that really concerns me uh, is the way Republicans have been framing the issue in Venezuelans. Because, of course, since these stunts are made to highlight the problem of the border, which is a, it's a disaster, and of course, to highlight hypocrisy of Democrat majors and all that, which I understand it's a political ploy that's a fair many points. The problem here is that we are now, Republicans are now confounding the venezuelan issue with illegal immigrants right after years of them being of they saying oh the venezuelan situation is so bad communism is so bad socialism is so bad this is what socialism causes to a country destroys a country and the venezuelan people are now suffering from it and that was all good all good or great and actually was true and, and empathetic and they say somehow say the same thing about cubans cubans are not uh refugee are not illegal immigrants are refugees because they, they're escaping a communist dictatorship oh but the venezuelans were ox who are also being ruled by a similar uh, dictatorship, they are illegal immigrants just because, of course, the ploy requires them to be illegal immigrants, right? So that's what actually concerns me quite a lot, that the Republican Party, who has been quite consistent on the way that characterized the Venezuelan crisis, now in these moments, because, of course, the political necessities dictate in that way, they change a little bit the tune. It's like, oh, Venezuelans are no longer, uh, you know, like kind of victims of communism, they're more another illegal immigrants are coming to the country. That's something that I consider it's uh, worrisome as a, as a Venezuelan and as a conservative as well. Here's the thing. Let's be adults here. When whoever planned this for, and I know DeSantis and Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis, they're getting the flack because these are their programs. They, pro they didn't handpick these folks. Somebody in their chain of command and their staffs did this. Somebody purposefully said, let's get the Venezuelans for this. They did that purposefully. They didn't get, you know, folks from any other country. They didn't use uh, Mexicans. They didn't use any other group. I know it's speculation. I don't think that's accidental. It can't be accidental of all the folks down there. They know the asylum process is more legally fraught. They know it's more complicated. They know that the uh, the situation of these folks is a little different. Why did they pick the Venezuelan folks for this, do you think? Because it's happened more than once now, so it's not accidental. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening in a while. I mean, actually, the majority of people being bussed around, it's not like only Martha's Vineyard or the vice president's home. It's like the majority of them are Venezuelans. Uh, I wouldn't know, and as you said, it's a speculative. I don't know the inner and outs and like the process it works, but my working theory is basically most Venezuelans who cross the border immediately ask for asylum. I mean, they cross the border and immediately ask for asylum because that's the way that that migratory flow is working, right? So when, when, when you ask for asylum, of course, you have to report to to government, basically. Right? You have to report to uh, border agents. You have to report to immigration officers in some ways. 
that makes the Venezuelan pool of uh, of migrants or refugees easier to detect, basically, than those from other countries that don't try to uh, claim asylum and try to actually uh, go into the country without being caught by migrate, um, immigration officers. That's what I think, first one. And the second one, of course, as you said, the situation is quite fraught. And Venezuelans, we are very new at this, uh, are trying to get this, uh, um, trying to get uh, of crossing the border. This is not a history of Venezuelan crossing the U.S. border. So, of course, people who come here can be easily dissuaded to try to go and pick a bus, maybe it works for them, actually. Maybe they want to go to New York, whatever. The situation is fraught. A lot of them probably don't know a lot of English. And, you know, it's a, a bit easier to get them to uh, uh, to agree. Probably a lot of them do agree and just want to go further north. And, like, they say, okay, I'll pick the free, the free ride. So I think it's a combination of both factors. One, that the Venezuelan pool is easier to detect. That's my working theory. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's not true. It's just completely speculative. And the second one is, of course, the situation is a little bit more fraud. A lot of Venezuelans, it's the first time they're doing from the United States. They don't have a lot of people who are trying to, it's just not a history, right? Of Venezuelans trying to cross into the United States through the Rio Grande. So it's easier for them to um, believe anything, really, what they, they're told. The sad truth of this, um, Daniel Chan Contreras joining us. The sad truth of this is, I think everybody got what they wanted out of this episode, the Martha's Vineyard episode. You know, this Governor DeSantis, he got his national pub. The anti-immigration folks got to throw a big fit. The pro-immigration fans got to say, oh, look how well we treated these people before we you know, shipped them off to Cape Cod, which, by the way, that's that's been a refugee place for years and years and years. That's 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 exactly where you put somebody like that. So that was all noise, too, by the way. Um, what do we do now? Because everybody got what they wanted out of this story. This is going to happen again. They're going to oh, keep yeah. doing this. Everybody, both sides. They're going to keep yeah, doing yeah, this yeah. because everybody got what they wanted out of it. So what do we do next time? Because there's going to be a next time. Well, that's that's something that really concerns me is the fact that it will continue happening. Venezuelans are now now part of the American political game, sometimes very political toxic game uh, between Democrats and Republicans. And there will not be a policy. And that's something that I said in, a, in Twitter thread. It was in Spanish, but I'll try to translate it. The fact that this Martha's Veneer episode, beside the hypocrisies of both parties and all that, shows that there is a lack of policy, a lack of coherent policy by the United States government to attend the biggest humanitarian crisis in the Western Hemisphere. And it will continue going on this way. You will see more buses going being shipped to uh, Washington, to New York, to other blue cities. Blue cities will, you know, do a photo up and say we treated them well and they shipped them off. Um, but the reality is that Venezuelans will still be the victim after this. I mean, the consequences of this is that Venezuelan asylum seekers do not have, there's not a policy to uh, take care of the Venezuelan refugee problem. And now that it's become politicized, there's even less chances for there to be a coherent policy response to the Venezuelan refugee crisis. A crisis that, and I really want to really point this out again and again and again and again, is not a unique American situation. It has been going on in the entire continent for years. 6.8 million people in the last four to five years, that's a quarter of the population. That's like if 80 to 90 million Americans left in four years. That's the, the, the situation. That's the, uh, it is almost at the same size as the Ukraine and the Syrian refugee crisis without a war. That's the size of the problem we're talking about. Americans only get the little bit of it four years later and it, got, um, it caught the American government and the political establishment uh, off guard. Yeah. Um, to put a bow on this, you tweeted about this extensively. I'm going to paraphrase and condense this because this Twitter thread was in Spanish and a lot of us don't hobble. So you tell me if I'm wrong on any of this, but <laughs> I'm going to try to paraphrase some of what you were getting to. 
And basically what you started driving at, because you started getting pushback on Twitter and you started responding to it. A lot of the same tropes we hear about the southern border is like, oh, well, Venezuelans, they're just sending us, you know, they're emptying their prisons and sending us all their bad folks. Or and then you went and this one really hit me because I think you're right. I think this is going to happen. I'm going to quote you here. And this is the Google Translate. So if it's a little off, you tell me. (laughs) But it it said in two years, you're going to see Republicans. And again, they've always said these are communist refugees. We need to help these people. What's going on in Venezuela? Correctly. What's going on in Venezuela is a humanitarian tragedy. This was one of the richest nations in the world through uh, natural resources and other ways. And they completely wrecked the economy in basically one decade. You said several Republicans, you're going to start seeing them say, well, Venezuela isn't really that bad, that it's been fixed. Why not just make them all go back? I'm afraid you're right, but I'm afraid you're right because we're starting to hear that about Cuba. We've started to hear that about other places that uh, legal immigrants even come to. There's this real hardcore wing, and it's always been there. You can go back to the 1880s and see the exact same propaganda of, well, you're native born or you need to go back. That kind of garbage. I think you're right because we've seen this over and over again all throughout American history where you have this anti And again, I'm not talking about illegal immigration, which is a problem that needs to be dealt with. Legal immigration, asylum seekers, refugees that we probably should be doing some kind of accommodation for. I think you're right to say that. What are you watching for in the next, you know, like we said, they're going to keep doing these events. What are you watching for in the next few years that are going to be warning signs that the tide like that is turning? Well, I think one of the most important things to note will be the way and the narrative that turns the uh, the Republican and conservative media outlets use to describe the Venezuelan situation, right? Until now, until a couple of months, it was always, Venezuela was used as a talking point for a campaign speech saying, this is what socialism does. It's really bad. People are fleeing for their lives or escaping a communist regime, which is all true. But if that tone when they talk about Venezuela, it changes from this is an example of what socialism can do to, oh, look, this is another example of what Biden felt immigration policy has done. And they're bringing uh, criminals and all that. There's this Breitbart report that uh, came out saying about talking about that, which I think is really inconsistent and intrinsic. If this is the new talking point when they talk about Venezuela, just the migratory issue and completely forget the root cause of the problem, which is communism and socialism. If that's going on, then I'm afraid the Republican uh, talking points and the Republican rhetoric on Venezuela will change drastically and will go on and will they will just simply lump it in as if it was another immigration problem of, like I don't know, Mexico and, and El Salvador or Guatemala or whatever. Yeah, and this is a problem, whether it's immigration, education, spending, whatever. When you start lumping things into buzzwords, you don't get any kind of good policy out of that because these things are complicated and you got to turn the noise down. That's why I have people like you on my friend, Daniel Chan Contreras, joining us. Uh, Till we get you back, I'm going to have you back because we're going to keep talking about this. This is going to continue to be an issue, unfortunately, for the Venezuelan people. Uh, Let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. We're going to, we got your social media up on the screen. Let folks know what you got going on until they see you on Hertel again, my friend. Uh, yeah, you can you guys can follow me on, on Twitter. Um, I usually post my thoughts over there, both in, in Spanish and English. And also write for El American, which is a conservative media outlet aimed at, at Hispanics. I occasionally write there. So anything that I post, I'll post it over there. Great job, buddy. Good information. We're going to keep talking about this because this stuff is complicated. And until you get into the little nitty gritty details of it, that's why our policies fail, because everybody wants to pick out their one tree in the forest, cut it down and then think the problem solved. That's not how these things work. And we need to focus on these as people problems first and then the policy will follow. Daniel Chan Contreras, love talking. Good time. 
we'll do it again real soon, sir. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And that'll do it for today's edition of Herd Tell. A lot going on in the world. We're going to keep getting in knowledgeable guests. We're going to keep doing what we always do, turn down the noise, get the information we need to discern the times we live in. We can't do it without you, though. Appreciate you listening. However you're watching or listening, whether it's on the, on the podcasting platforms or YouTube or our radio partner or the Facebook page they have, we sure do appreciate you. We'd love to hear from you. We've actually done whole shows and segments just off questions or t- comments or things you wanted covered that you didn't think people were talking about at Herd Tell Show on the Gmail. Dot com if you want to send us an email love to hear from you there at her tell show on the twitter you can message us there of course my social media and our guest social media is always on the screen make sure you follow and support them do us a favor share us on your social media leave likes and comments on whatever platform you're on continue to let people know that our program is worth checking out on tuesday tuesday was the single largest day of podcasting downloads on the podcasting side we have ever had on this show by a factor of about four thank you so much we appreciate your time so until we see you again we hope wherever you are across the street or around the world you and yours are well we hope you're well fed talk to you again real soon for more herd tell All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.